Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. We are so pleased to introduce you today to the inspiring Dr. Terry Walls. We actually had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Terry Walls back in, I believe it was 2014. We met her at a Mind Body Green Revitalize conference and had the pleasure of listening to her story firsthand, which you will get to listen to today. It is so moving and so inspiring and really drives home this message of food as medicine. Uh, She brings all of the science behind it and teaches us about the chemistry of life. Dr. Terry Walls has been practicing medicine since 1982 with degrees in both internal medicine and obstetrics and gynecology. In 2000, Dr. Walls was diagnosed with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, which confined her to a tilt-recline wheelchair for four years. By embracing the power of food as medicine, as well as holistic lifestyle shifts, she was able to dramatically heal herself, saying goodbye to her wheelchair forever. She now passionately lives her mission as a doctor, professor, researcher, speaker, and author of The Walls Protocol teaching people all across the world how to take their health back into their own hands. We're so excited to hear from Dr. Terry Walls today as her food philosophy very much mirrors the Saqqara Life Nutrition philosophy in so many ways, like the importance of eating your greens, nourishing your microbiome, and getting a variety of plants into your diet. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. Please welcome Dr. Terry Walls. I think we should definitely touch on your story. It's so inspiring. Um, But before we go there, we love to ask all of our guests on the Sakara Life podcast a bit about their personal mission. Uh, What do you believe your mission is here on this planet? I'm going to give you two answers. The first answer is the answer that got me through the darkest days of my life. And that was, I wanted my children to grow up to be successful adults emotionally and financially. And that's how I kept going, even when things were very difficult. Now, there's another mission that I have, and that is to help others understand that if I can recover from the depth of my difficulties, there's hope for them too. Uh, And so, my desire is to create an epidemic of health by teaching people just how much control they have of their health by what they choose to eat and the self-cares that they do, their health behaviors every day. It it turns out that by teaching people how to do that, I will be reversing much more chronic disease than I ever reversed 
uh, in all of my years as a practicing physician and teaching other physicians that uh, when I was focusing on disease treatment as opposed to health creation, I was much less effective. That's powerful. That's the epitome of food as medicine. The, the creation of an epidemic of health. That's my mission. And I think that's your mission too. It really is. It really is. And so, you know, I remember I watched your TED Talk and we've already told our listeners to watch your TED Talk because it is minding your mitochondria. It is incredibly powerful. But I think for those listeners that haven't had a chance to watch it or um, haven't heard of you, could you give a brief background on your story and why that is your mission? Because, you know, Whitney and I talk a lot about our mission came from hitting our rock bottom with our health. Um, And I know you have a similar story. So I'm an internal medicine physician uh, at an academic uh, university here. And uh, as a young physician, I was very skeptical of special diets, complementary medicine, alternative medicine, functional medicine. But, you know, God has a mysterious way of giving us insight. You know, in retrospect, my symptoms actually began during medical school with episodes of electrical face pain that would ultimately be diagnosed as trigeminal neuralgia. And I took a variety of meds. Uh, but developed drug rashes and couldn't be on any of them. Over years, uh, they became more severe, more frequent. Then uh, about 13 years later, I developed weakness in my left leg, was evaluated and found to have uh, a couple lesions in my spinal cord and one in my head. And I was told I had multiple sclerosis. So again, I wanted to treat my disease very aggressively because I understood that MS is a progressive disease. And so I did some research, found the best people in the country, saw the very best people at that center, took the newest drugs, and went steadily downhill. Now, fortunately, my uh, physicians told me about the work of Lauren Cordain. And after reading his books and his papers, uh, and I'd been a a low-fat vegetarian diet for 20 years, and, and I was thinking that was doing the best thing for me, I decided to reintroduce meat. I gave up all grains, all legumes, all dairy. I continued to decline. Then the next year, I'm in a recline wheelchair. I'm taking more potent drugs, including those new biologics. And it's very clear that the best drugs from the best people, the latest research was not stopping my march towards a bedridden, demented, and quite possibly intractable pain life. Uh, And I have young kids. So I go back to reading the basic science, uh, models of MS, of Parkinson's, of Alzheimer's, of Huntington's disease. I decide that mitochondria are the big driver of disability, and I start uh, taking supplements to support my mitochondria. I discover the Institute for Functional Medicine. They have a course on neuroprotection, which I take. I have a longer list of supplements, which I add. And then I have, uh, a few months later, this really big aha moment. Like, what if I redesign my paleo diet on a very specific way based on all the basic science, the ancestral health stuff I was reading, functional medicine stuff I was reading? And so now... I'm dialing back my meat. I'm dialing up my vegetables in a very specific way. Um, And it's stunning. It's shocking. Within three months, my pain is gone for the first time in 27 years. My brain fog is gone. My fatigue is gone. And I'm strong enough I can sit up again at the table. And I begin walking with walking sticks. In six months... I get on my bike, 
And we have my son jogging on the left, my daughter jogging on the right, my wife's following on, on her bike. And I bike around the block for the first time in six years. Now my son is crying, my daughter's crying, my wife's crying, I'm crying. So when I tell that story, I cry again because it was so miraculous. This really changes how I think about disease and health. It will change the way I practice medicine. I start talking more and more to my patients about their diet, their lifestyle choices, and it transforms my clinical practice. And then I uh, change the focus of my research. And this is now what I investigate in research is the use of diet and lifestyle to manage, or at least as part of your treatment plan, for multiple sclerosis. It's such an incredible story, and it clearly brings <laughs> Whitney and I to tears too. Um, and you know, we're lucky enough to hear testimonials like this from you know our clients, and we talk often about how it's the thing that keeps us going because this business can be incredibly difficult to deliver fresh food all across the country. Um, but I think one of the reasons your story is incredibly profound is not just your healing process and how you use food as medicine, but the transformation from the kind of doctor you were to the doctor you became. And I loved hearing you say that you didn't really believe in, you know, functional medicine and all these things like that. that I hear that often from doctors. Like, why is that? Where does that, how does that um, happen? Yeah. How does that happen? So, you know, for thousands of years, physicians, the only tools we had were uh, diet and health behaviors, sunlight, fresh air, and so that's what we taught our patients to do. Uh, then in World War II, at, at that point, the big killer for people was trauma and infection. And during World War I, World War II, we discovered uh, antibiotics. And you had young, healthy, vigorous people on the brink of death have remarkable recoveries, dramatic recoveries with penicillin, with sulfa antibiotics. And so... We were so impressed with the power of these drugs, and the public was so impressed. They could take these drugs and save someone who was on the imminent brink of dying. And so, it also at the same time, over the last 300 years, we'd radically changed our diet because our brains are wired to crave sugar, salt, fat, and we're very inventive as a species. We can adapt our environments. We've become very good at making products that meat, that salt, that sugar, that inactivity, that pleasure, that we created a diet that was very convenient, very tasty, less and less expensive, and more destructive to our health. And so our health was steadily declining. Infections were killing us off. We just discovered that antibiotics could do this dramatic thing, recovering people. And then we're discovering that people are developing high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancers. And so we think, and it's understand, I can understand why we would have thought that, that, man, we are so powerful at creating drugs that save people's lives with antibiotics. We can do the same thing for high blood pressure, for diabetes, for heart disease, for cancers. And so we started spending billions and billions of dollars looking for these drugs and the drugs would fix the symptoms, would fix the broken individual chemical step that we figured out, but they kept needing higher doses of drugs and then new drugs. And the diseases kept piling on. Mm -hmm. 
because we were focused on disease as opposed to creating health. And then fortunately, there are a few physicians who got desperately ill, like myself, who were reading the basic science. And along the way, I started thinking like, you know, I got to start focusing on doing what are the things under my control. And so it was meditation. It was exercise. I worked very closely with my physical therapist. I kept that going. I was doing, you know, what I thought was the right thing with diet. And I got a little bit better. Uh, And then when I thought about diet from a more biochemical standpoint, like, okay. And I redid my paleo diet in this very much more plant-centered way and very specific plants. It was stunning, the transformation and the amount of greens. When I I ramped up the greens, and this was all about um, uh, magnesium, uh, carotenoids. Now I know it's also about vitamin K. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Okay. It's one of my favorite things. So (laughs) vitamin K in green plants is K1. The bacteria in our gut will uh, metabolize that K1 to make K2 and K7. And the uh, small intestine, the distal part of it, the ileum, will reabsorb that K2 and K7. It'll get off to our liver, where we'll metabolize a little bit further to make K2 and K4. And so it turns out that that molecule is really important for my ability to get calcium out of my bloodstream, into my teeth, into my bones, and out of the calcification on my heart valves and my blood vessel walls. So I want my heart valves and blood vessel walls to be flexible. And it also turns out this K2MK4, the highest concentration is in our brain. Uh, Ah. And we're we're slowly piecing together. So what, what does it do in the brain? It helps with oligodendrocytes. Those are the cells that make myelin. That's the insulation on the wiring between brain cells. And it appears to be important in the differentiation of brain stem cells. Now, I'm so old that when I went to medical school, we were taught that, you know, you got your brain cells when you're a baby, you're getting more and you lost them, you're just poop out of luck. But it turns out our brain actually is very plastic all along. So if you aren't using your brain, it is going to disappear. But if you're using your brain and you're learning stuff, it can increase in size. You can make more synapses. You can take other brain cells and reorient them in terms of what work they're going to do for you. And K2MK4 helps support that process, helps support that plasticity helps support uh, your brain stem cells, so your repairability helps uh, support oligodendrocytes. And, you know, we're spending billions and billions of dollars trying to find drugs that will support these things. Again, and I've seen a lot of supplements with K2, but it's yeah, interesting to hear. Yeah, a lot of supplements with K2. But, but it's interesting to hear that it comes from our gut bacteria. And you have to eat a lot of green leafy things. If we eat those leafy greens, our gut bacteria will actually um, make that K2 that we need and support brain health, is what you're saying. Absolutely. And now, another variation I can talk about is, again, you know, when I was a medical student and a young resident, we made so much fun of the elderly patients who would say, you know, if I could just have a good bowel movement, I know I would feel so much better. <laughs> and that they were so fixated on their bowels and, you know, constipation would be a big problem. Well, we now know that, in fact, our microbiome, uh, it really helps us run the chemistry of life. 
that our ancestors, if we go back thousands of generations in, in our ancestors, because Randy mutations occur all the time, we will occasionally have a Randy mutation that means an enzyme no longer works very well. But if that ancestral mother had bacteria that could do that enzymatic step, that was fine. She had reproductive success. And at that moment, that enzymatic step got transported from our ancestral mother's DNA to her microbiome. And that is how we went from probably having a genome of 100,000 genes plus to a genome of about 25,000 genes. We exported 75,000 genes that could, our bacteria could run. Mm-hmm. And the other 25,000, if you make a boo-boo, the bacteria can't run them, and you're not going to have reproductive success. That offspring won't survive nearly as well. What this means is, we're now piecing together, is we are really an ecosystem. In order to have robust health, I need my bacteria to help digest my food, make vitamins, including vitamin K2 and K7, take these food molecules, break them down into smaller molecules that will get into my bloodstream, that will impact my immune cells, may go to my brain, impact my brain, impact my other organs, fill in those missing steps for those 75,000 genes that we used to have, but you know we've had mutations, so now we have to rely on our bacteria. So fascinating. We as a species, we have a a very, very long history as a species of eating an incredibly diverse set of plants, mostly green leaves, some berries, some roots, a lot of dirt. 100 grams of fiber a day. (laughs) You know, at about uh, 2 million years ago, between 6 million and 2 million years ago, we started eating more meats, insects, shellfish. We'd use rocks to crack open these skulls. So we had more fat. That let us grow bigger brains. Then the next big, big innovation, about 200,000 years ago, we started cooking our food. And that let us absorb more nutrients from the food that we ate. It also, interesting enough, let us decrease the size of our intestine. And so our bellies got smaller, our intestines got shorter, and we're clearly omnivores then. We're having fewer plants. We're cooking them. We're also fermenting them. We've been fermenting things about 100,000 years ago. Then about 10,000 years ago, we started having some dairy. We also began having grain, legumes. We narrowed our diet. You know, we still, in general, we're flourishing fairly well as a species, and our numbers are expanding all over the globe. And then the next big thing happened was the Industrial Revolution, and we discovered how to make sugar mm. and white flour. And then we get really good at making this product more affordable, available, and our health steadily uh, deteriorates. And so that's the emergence of autoimmune issues, of diabetes, of high blood pressure. We start having more cancers. 75 years ago, we add in more trans fats, we add in more emulsifiers, more food additives, and the intake of plants and the diversity of our diet goes steadily downhill. You know, now I think we're down to like one and a half servings a day of plants. And the number of plants uh, that we're consuming is dramatically less. Uh, And so the diversity of our microbiome 
because we've so radically changed our diet is dramatically less. And we're more likely to have gaps in those biochemical processes that we rely on our bacteria. The history is really amazing to hear. I've never really heard it told like that. And it really helps, I think, people understand how we got here. And um, I also think it paints this picture of there are things that you need pharmaceutical drugs for, but um, your overall health and, and wellness is, you know, we talk about how every time you sit down to eat, you're deciding how good you want to feel. Correct. You know, I, I agree that pharmaceutical drugs can be very good at uh, symptoms and they're designed mm-hmm. to control a symptom, a particular biochemical process, but they aren't creating health. Yeah. If we're going to create health, we also have a very robust science for that. And again, sort of step by step, but we're complex. So the more ways I support the creation of health, the more effectively I can run the biochemistry, the physiology, Mm-hmm. And then that self-correcting, self-healing process has a better chance. And what I learned, you know, so I started practicing this way, and I'm talking less and less about drugs and more and more about diet and lifestyle. What I learned was how to talk about this much more carefully with my patients, with my colleagues, and in the medical record and with the public. And that my message is, we're, we're going to really work on improving health, improving how you can run the, the uh, chemistry of life in your cells. And then I'm going to monitor you carefully to see what happens. Because if you do make big improvements in how your cells are running the chemistry of life, we will likely be in a position where you're be at risk of being over-medicated. That you're, as your blood pressure improves, we'll have to reduce your blood pressure meds. As your blood sugar improves, we'll have to reduce your blood sugar meds. As your pain reduces, we'll want to reduce your pain meds. And so we'll want to watch closely and try and reduce your medication as clinically appropriate. So I have to learn how to talk about this in a way that everyone feels comfortable and safe and no one feels threatened. Right, right. And you can get by it. Because we don't want to be in a pissing match with the people using conventional medicines because sometimes those drugs really do save lives and they can be critical. And as I improve people's health, I have to alert them, the prescribing Mm -hmm. uh, and the patients that we have to watch you closely because the goal is to have you on the fewest drugs that is clinically appropriate. And if you start getting lightheaded, your blood pressure may be getting too low and we have to make adjustments. Like the goal of lowering medications is such like a revolutionary act <laughs> as a physician. Correct. I think that's that's not how many approach. Um, one thing I'd love to hear you talk about is this idea of the chemistry of life. Um, you know, I studied biochemistry and I'm actually getting my master's in functional medicine right now. Um, oh, excellent. And so I understand what you mean and... Um, understand the importance of mitochondria and glycolysis. and But I think it'd be nice to kind of paint the picture for maybe some people that um, don't know yeah. what the mitochondria do and don't understand how they're, why they're the powerhouses of the cell well, and why well, it all connects back to food. We're going to go back in time about uh, a billion and a half years ago. Well, actually, we can go back about uh, two billion years. The beginning of biochemical steps, biochemical compounds, that are happening in the ancient seas. And as these steps get more refined, they can be reproducible. And that's how life begins. A series of controlled biochemical steps. 
then um, cyanobacter, uh, a bacteria that produces oxygen from sunlight, emerges. And the oxygen levels slowly increase over, again, millions of years. I think it's about a half million years. And that high level of oxygen causes oxidation and rust to occur biologically. And about 95% of life dies. These are single cellular organisms. Now, again, fortunately, because of random mutations, we get bacterial species that can do the Krebs cycle, that can use this oxygen to make a new molecule called adenosine triphosphate. And it does so really very effectively. So this new little bacteria is doing really, really well. And it, fortunately for us, is engulfed by a bigger bacteria. And the two develop a very cooperative relationship. What happens is this new bacteria has great reproductive success. And so it's growing, 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 increasing in numbers, and will ultimately, over time, become multicellular animals, eventually us. And of course, eventually it becomes um, mammals and primates and us. And within all of our cells are these ancient bacteria that are now mitochondria that power the energy for that cell. In those parts of our cells that are particularly uh, doing a lot of work, so they need lots of energy, we'll have more mitochondria per cell. All of our cells rely on mitochondria. And while the cell can make energy without mitochondria, it's nowhere near as efficient. Uh, that's why oxygen is an important nutrient. Food is an important nutrient. Fortunately for us, our mitochondria are very flexible. They can feed off of sugar. They could feed off of protein. They could feed off of fat. Sugar is the most convenient. It's probably why we like sweet things so well. But, you know, our ancestors could, if there was no plant material around, because of drought, famine, winter, we could survive on no food, that is the stored fat, or we could survive on a hunt uh, and uh, protein only. And then, you know, summer comes around and we've got plenty of plants again, and we're back to a much more plant-rich diet. <clears throat> and so mitochondria have been powering our, our cells forever. And because mitochondria could, while they prefer sugar, could run on fat, that lets us survive winter and famine and drought and more. And they could survive on protein uh, as well. So that gives us more flexibility. And then how does sulfur play a role in this? You know, at Saqqara, we have our different nutritional pillars, um, getting six to eight cups of leafy greens every day, eating the rainbow, so getting those vibrantly rich colors, and then eating sulfurous vegetables, which doesn't sound very sexy. And I know you say that mitochondria aren't sexy. Well, we believe that mitochondria are sexy and sulfur is sexy too. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about it. So that group of vegetables, uh, the cabbage family, onion family, mushroom family, have a lot of sulfur in them. And our ancestors, and this is really across cultures in Asia, South Asia, Africa, Europe, South America, and North America, have found medicinal value in mushrooms, medicinal value in the garlic, onion, leek family. And so that's been part of the healing tradition across many cultures, you know, essentially all of our continents. 
And that was before we understood that they had sulfur in them, before we understood any of the biochemistry. Now that we understand the biochemistry, uh, we know that the isothiocyanate in the sulfur family is really very helpful for making neurotransmitters and a very uh, key compound in cells, glutathione. And so in order to make this master antioxidant, we need a lot of organic sulfur. Mm. Furthermore, this sulfur boosts the efficiency of the enzymes in my liver, my sweat glands, uh, and my kidneys that will process and eliminate toxins. We know that these compounds also appear to have a big impact on the flexibility of my blood vessel walls. And so that's very helpful on that impact. So Whitney and I often speak to this idea of, and you spoke to it too, people often feel like they have to take things out of their diet in order to heal. And at Sakara, we talk about, it's actually really, really important to focus on what you are getting. And and we argue almost more than what you take out in some cases. Obviously, in your case, that might be a different one because you were trying to heal from a very serious disease. But in general, you know, I hear people say, oh, you know, my doctor says I might be a little sensitive to strawberries, um, you know, but then I'm with them the next day and they're, you know, having pizza and champagne and but not eating the strawberries. Um, So all to say, I think that oftentimes people like to focus on what to take out. Um, and that also, this is these are kind of two thoughts that I'm not sure necessarily go together, but I'm going to try. The second thought is you were talking a lot about sugar. And I know that what you're speaking to, especially in the chemistry of life, is glucose. And that that's, that's what we use as our major energy source when you're talking about Krebs cycle and glycolysis. Um, and I just want to make sure people don't think that all, you know, sugar is yeah. bad, that it's actually glucose that you're referring to. And there's glucose in carrots, there's glucose in just Correct. about every vegetable that you're having. Um, so can you speak to, to that a little bit and just the importance that, that it's okay to get your energy source from glucose, which is technically a sugar, but well, a very, let's, very let's important Let's be one. very precise. Um, so sugar is a substrate for carbohydrates. And so we have uh, all these sugar molecules in long chains that makes uh, a carbohydrate. And so the questions is, have we added sugar to the food item? Because that sugar will jump into our bloodstream very quickly and give me a hit of dopamine in my Mm -hmm. brain, uh, which will enhance my um, enjoyment of that food product. And then has the food product been designed with another food additive that perhaps increases my craving and my withdrawal symptoms if I'm missing that food. So when I'm talking about sugars and food additives, I'm really talking about sugars that have been added to the food. So carrots and beets have a lot of carbs in them, and they can be really, really good for you. If you have diabetes and I'm worried about your blood sugar, I may give you different instructions about how to eat those carrots and beets, which are really good for you. And perhaps instead of having them cooked, I'll tell you, we're going to make raw salads with them. And that I'll tell you, berries, which are lower in glucose, uh, lower in sugar, they have many, many phytonutrients that are really good for you. So that even if you're a diabetic, I may want you to have some berries. Um, I'll want you to have your starchy vegetables raw. So there's a lot of personalization I think about in the context of their weight, their blood sugar, 
the insulin resistance as a public health message, I could tell people uh, what is a very good principle for the to think about is get rid of the added sugar, get rid of the food additives, eat your carrots, your beets, your berries, your cabbage, your mushrooms, your onions. Mm -hmm. So you talk a lot about longevity. How do you think your diet has an impact on longevity and does it? You know, it's really pretty fun. Um, If you look at serial photographs of me, you'll see that in 2007, when I'm 52, I look like I'm in my late 60s. And clearly, I was aging more rapidly than my chronologic age. And I was eating what um, my paleo friends, you know, I was eating a paleo diet, but I was clearly still aging. When I in my diet, in this very precise way, more vegetables, less meat, more fats, and I recover. And now you look at photographs, and I keep looking younger and younger and younger. My skin looks better and better. My hair is still getting gray. That that is true. (laughs) Um, But I seem to be youthening. In my clinics at the VA, as I would teach people these concepts, it was very typical that we'd see people youthen in front of our eyes over the next year. And they'd often youthen like by five years to 10 years. That's been a remarkable swing. And I tell my tribe to do those kinds of things just so you can see what happens when you get rid of the cigarettes, eat more vegetables, exercise, go outside, get your vitamin D, try to sleep seven to nine hours a night have five or more serenes of vegetables a day, have a meaningful relationship with a friend. It's those health behaviors that make this big shift in chronologic age. And that's based on epidemiologic evidence from thousands of studies. It is our health behaviors that drive aging. It is eating vegetables. It is sleeping at night. It is exercising every day. It's getting outside. It is having a happy relationship with a spouse. You are singing our song. You are singing our song. We we offer, when you're on breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you get over 12 servings of vegetables. Perfect. Yeah, which is obviously more than the daily recommended amount, but we didn't believe that the daily recommended amount was enough. Yeah, no, um, I think that 12 servings is excellent. You know, it's funny when I would teach this to the vets, that's okay. It's nine cups of vegetables. My registered dietitians were like, that's 18 servings. No one can do that. And vets would say like, is, is that a, a week, a month? What? It's not as a, a day, nine cups of vegetables a day, nine yeah. cups of vegetables a day. But we'd have cooking classes. We'd have food demonstrations. We'd see them monthly. And then in the monthly support groups, the newbies would be counseled by the more senior folks in the support group who would explain that they could do it and that they were very successful in the transformations that they were experiencing. And people would begin to figure out how to do this. And they too would experience these remarkable transformations. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a beautiful place to end the conversation um, on the importance of getting a lot of plants every single day. And you kind of spoke to this in your talk about how the plasticity of the brain actually allows us to make new neural connections. And that's really what light work does is help us create a new pathway for us so we can start to tell a new story about ourselves. 
So and we ask that you have light work. If you have light yes. work, you can share I'm going to stand up and do it for you. It's hopefully I can. Oh, it's okay. a thing. <laughs> okay. Okay. So stand. I am learning every day how to take better care of myself. I am getting stronger. My mitochondria are healing. I am healing. You know, one of the most important things that we can do is to practice saying good things to ourselves Mm -hmm. about what we are doing and to say them out loud. Uh, And you notice that I stood up, I put my arms out, I took up a lot of space, and I said them out loud. Power pose. Very uncomfortable. But if we are verbalizing negative things, we're imprinting negative stuff on our brain. So you want to imprint a positive message. And then even if the message is simply, I am learning, that's a very positive thing. Mm -hmm. I am healing. That is a very, very positive thing. My brain is rewiring. That is a very positive thing. And a short declarative statement. If you want to be even more bold, you can say, Terry, you are getting stronger every day. So you can use your name. That makes it even more powerful, but that may feel a little bit awkward. But say positive things. You are learning, you are doing, you are growing, you are healing. So I am so powerful. Growing, I am healing. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your incredible story. And thank you for doing the work that you do. And I I feel like I have a new takeaway of what you do, at least from my perspective, is I think helping bridge. um, We talk a lot in Saqqara, like bridging science and spirit. And it feels like you're on a similar mission of um, making sure people understand the importance of wellness and health and food and lifestyle choices, and then matching that with um, research and more kind of like scientific, um, I guess, like verbiage so that people on the other side that maybe haven't experienced a transformation through the power of food as medicine can start to understand what we mean when we're talking about this. Thank you so much for being here today. We're very grateful. Thank you. It just never gets old hearing people's stories of transformation and the healing power of food as medicine, huh, Whit? Yeah, absolutely. This one especially, it brought us both to tears. All three of us. All three of us. She was teary too. And I guess it's just so inspiring because you know, you and I hit our rock bottom, but it was so different than hers. And um, like she was in a wheelchair and thought that, you know, she was going to just only be getting worse and worse and worse. And against all of her doctor's orders, you know, she decided to dig into the science herself and changed her diet. And that had the biggest impact. And I loved how she talked about even seeing, you know, the most well-revered doctors in the field of MS, even, you know, they didn't have the tools to help her like, you know, her plate did, which is just amazing. Yeah, it, makes sure. me feel, it makes me feel even more aligned and inspired by our mission. So, Today, we have an incredible Sakara story that further inspires me to remember that food is medicine. And every time we sit down to eat, we're deciding how we want to feel, not just now, but for the rest of our lives. 
So today we are hearing from Patience. Patience lives in Boston. And her Sakara story is, I've had systemic lupus for four years now and had been placed on a very strict diet that is plant-based and dairy-free. It was good for me, but very hard and sometimes bland. As a struggling college student, it has been very hard to keep up with trying to make my food taste good. After telling my cousin about all of this, she told me about you and offered to get me a week's meal plan from Sakara. It is only day two and you have changed my life. I'm not kidding. In four years of feeling depleted and malnourished, I've never enjoyed food more. It made me happy. I didn't experience the lupus headache I usually do at night after just four days of using your detox and beauty drops. All of this is to say thank you. I look forward to finishing this week and having more meals that help me. Whitney and Danielle, you have impacted me so much in just two days. Thank you. And I hope this message comes to you. Mm. Well, this message did come to us and... Thank you for sending it to us. Um, It is these stories that inspire hope in us and in our listeners out there. Just like Dr. Walls was talking about, these stories are here in order to help other people who might feel like they have no hope. Yeah. (laughs) You're crying. crying. Well, I love how she said that... um, I mean, I love everything she said, but oftentimes we talk about this idea of food as medicine. And I think we forget to talk about how delicious the food is. (laughs) That It's actually supposed to be fun and healing to take care of yourself. It doesn't have to be restrictive and bland. Like I think so many of us have been taught to believe. So not only am I honored that we got to help you feel really good, but I personally feel so excited that it was also a fun experience for you patients or a delicious experience. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story, patients. We love you. And thank you to everyone that has submitted their Sakara stories. They keep us going. And I know that your stories not only impact Whitney and I, but impact everybody listening as well. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Mm-hmm.